0: Good morning. We um, Thank you, Brent, for the, um, I love that gospel text, and I want to come back around to that a little later in the message. But actually, um, really felt led to speak this morning from the Old Testament lectionary reading um, for today, which comes from Isaiah chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 20. And the word of the Lord declares, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now keep in mind, Isaiah here is not writing to literal Sodom and Gomorrah. He's writing to Jerusalem. He's writing to the people of God here. But he's calling back to mind Sodom and Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation, I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. Will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Lord, I would simply ask now that by your spirit you would awaken us and enlighten us, that you would illuminate the text, that you would illuminate our own hearts, that most of all you would illuminate your heart to us, that we would see things that we could not see, know things we could not know unless you reveal them to us in the way that only you can, Spirit of God, our teacher, our God. We invite you, we welcome you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Well, this is a cheery text, Huh? frightening one for me in many ways. The prophet addressing the people of God, speaking on God's behalf, says, I've had enough of your festivals and your Sabbaths. I've had enough of your fasting. I've had enough of your new moons. I've had enough of all of it, your convocation, your solemn assembly, uh, enough of the sacrifices. Part of what makes this text especially jarring to me is that the prophet here is, seems to be condemning things That God has in fact asked for. Uh, The liturgical worship that they're doing has been given to them by the book of Leviticus. They're making sacrifices because they think God wants them to make sacrifices. They're praying prayers that they feel like they've been given to pray. They are uh, recognizing and honoring a Sabbath that God first consecrated. This would seem to be Israel at her best. Doing the very things that God has required And yet the accusation here is, even though the people had got the liturgy right, they forgot what the liturgy was for. Even though they had the order of worship right, the order of worship was not ordering their own lives. It wasn't causing them to reorder the world. Somehow, what was happening in the liturgy, which was good and right and consecrated, wasn't translating to a very different kind of life, a very different quality of life lived on the ground. And for this reason, God says, I've had enough. This feels like a charade to me. This feels like going through the motions. This is just a form. You're not seeking justice. And that for me is the part, because I don't want you to miss this, that for me really is the crux of the text, is that when God says, I can't receive this worship, because you have blood on your hands. When God says that I can't receive this worship, it has even become an abomination to me. It is not because of some, I don't know. I just tend to think a lot of things that we think most of is breaking the law that are going to be the biggest of deals to God, maybe are not always the thing. But here's what is offensive to the heart of God here. And we see this as a common theme throughout scripture. What God is offended at, he says, you're not seeking justice. You're not taking care of the widows and orphans. You're not defending those who are marginalized. You aren't rescuing the oppressed. If you're not going to do these things, then I'm not interested in your worship. Such a stunning and a staggering text and a frightening for me, a frightening one for me because I'm the sort of person who cares a lot about liturgy, cares a lot about worship, cares a lot about theology. And yet here's one of the things I'm coming to know, uh, to learn about liturgy, even through my own journey. And I'm so grateful for Um, kind of through the church, those of us who are pressing in the order of St. Anthony with Bishop Ed, one of the things that we're doing is that we do the daily offices from the Book of Common Prayer, so every morning, every evening. And what I found for that, part of what's happening for me is that I feel like that liturgy is waking me up, that through praying those prayers, encountering these different texts, uh, the prayers for the world that we offer, it causes me just to be, I feel like it just keeps waking me up. I feel like I live so much of my life asleep to the pain that's in the world. But if I engage the liturgy with my heart, what I find is that it's opening my eyes wider than I even want them to be opened to the pain that's in the world, to what's really going on. Yet at the same time, there's part of me, it's like, as much as I'm grateful for that journey, it scares me too. Because I know as the liturgy wakes me up, that I also, there's always the option to try to pretend I'm not seeing that, to bury my head in the sand. In other words, I'm accountable for the things that I see. I'm accountable for the things that I learn. And it's scary for me that it's possible to get the liturgy right and still miss the point. Scary for me that it's possible to, to, to get the liturgy right where it's supposed to be and yet not be shaped into the kinds of people that God intends us to become through this liturgy. It's a sobering, sobering thing. But that's the possibility that's raised here by the text. The liturgy that we're given, the kind of ordered worship that we have here is supposed to be waking us up to see what's really happening in the world, not causing us to kind of put our heads in the sand. Um, I have a couple of statements. I don't normally do it like this, but a couple things I really wanted to give to you the way I just, through prayer, just kind of felt like these things were given to me. Liturgy is not supposed to hypnotize us, but awaken us. Liturgy should not anesthetize us from the pain of the world, but teach us to feel the pain of the world. Liturgy should not teach us to escape the world, but engage it with the hope of the gospel. The more and more we engage right liturgy, if we do it with our eyes and our ears open and our hearts open, then we come to see the world in a different way. We come to see the world in ways that don't allow us to continue to live as if we are asleep. I feel like, and let me say it this way part of what makes the, the justice word such an intimidating one for us, or at least it is for me, is that justice, I think, is something deeper than mercy. It's different than mercy. Mercy has to do with compassion, acts of service. Justice always calls into question systems and structures in the world of inequality. If you want to know what God's justice looks like, I think it can be summed up in a single sentence uh, from the New Testament. Justice is what happens when God bring, makes, brings the mountains to be made low and he exalts the valleys. That's God's justice. But we can't seek God's justice if we don't first allow ourselves to be awakened to the injustice that's in the world. If we can't see injustice, then we can't seek justice. If we can't recognize oppressed people, if we can't recognize oppressors, then we're not in a position to seek justice. And I feel like so much of what happens right now is that we just have so many things that kind of numb us and lull us to sleep. Uh, I think especially in our culture right now, our gadgetry often lulls us to sleep. This is going to be a reach for a sermon illustration, but I'm reading a Stephen King novel. Hee hee he. I read a lot of Stephen King novels, actually. Where part of the idea, work with me here, is that there's a serial killer who gets access to these little devices that are kind of like iPads, but they're just for games. And there's a game called Fishing Hole, where basically it's, you know, it's, uh, it's funny this was written when it was, because this is not, this is about Pokemon Go or whatever. But it's like there's basically, there's this, they, people are staring at their screens. And they see these little uh, numbers appear, and they're trying to grasp for them. And they just do this for hours and hours until they get hypnotized. And this is how the killer gets them to do what they want to do. So i uh, am not... Don't want to encourage any serial killers, potentially, to learn how to harness this technology. But I'm reading this, and it's like it's all kind of done. In, I mean, this is a thriller. It's done in fun. But for me, that seems like such a realistic depiction in many ways of kind of what's happening to us. This lulled in by the screen. So then we can be told to do anything. We'll listen to anything. It's just hypnotized by it. The sheer amount of information overload. Um, we are a people who has more access to more information than anyone in the history of the world. But instead of making us more compassionate, instead of causing us to be more aware of injustice and inequality and seeking God's justice, what often happens, I think, is that we just, we just get paralyzed by the sheer amount of information. These things just continually lull us to sleep and it's instead of actually waking us up. But the point here is that what God is calling us to, what the liturgy is calling us to, is a way of living awake which means we have to learn, even if we have to struggle through this, to recognize oppression. We have to learn to recognize people who are oppressed. We have to learn how to recognize oppressors, which I recognize is controversial business. No one really wants to talk about oppression and injustice. Nobody wants to reflect in a meaningful way on how we might be complicit in these things that actually cause oppression. Who really wants to see that for what it is? We're living in a time where even caring for widows and orphans is oddly controversial because we may, in fact, label the widows and orphans to be dangerous rather than to recognize them as people in danger. Justice is never neutral to principalities and powers. Justice is not neutral about Pharaoh or the way that that Pharaoh enslaves people by having them build bricks day after day, week in and week out, in a way that numbs their souls. It's not indifferent to Pharaoh. So the moment we begin to talk about injustice, the moment we begin to talk about equality and whether or not people are giving a fair shake and what we're doing about that as the church inevitably brings us into all kinds of conflict. And to be clear, I don't like this more than anybody else. Sometimes I think, uh, especially in, like the big, uh, in the big way of preaching, you, I can talk about things and maybe it sounds like Moses coming down the mountain, and I could not feel more opposite of that. Like, I'm not coming down the mountain. I am at the base of the mountain. <laughs> I mean, it's just, like, there's, so, there's just so much I feel like I'm just coming to see so differently. Um, all of my life, theology has mattered to me. I don't mean this pretentiously, but I, I mean, I've done a couple theology degrees. Like, I care about that. And I'm a product of so much theological conversation, and I love to preach and teach. Truth be told, it's kind of all I want to do, you know, is sort of preach and teach. That's all I feel like I'm good at. So it's never, it's never super comfortable or fun, for me to uh, like really have to jump into this kind of authentic conversation of what are you going to do with what you hear because i want someone else to figure that out <laughs> let me work on the theology and let me talk pretty for a living and somebody else can figure out how to like live these things out like that like that's scary to me and yet at the same time the the other, the, the movement i'm finding in my life these days is that so much of the theological conversation that has informed me in the past has become so boring to me now. You know, it really, it really is. It doesn't have the same effect. I don't enjoy anymore the same kind of circular conversations I did when I was in my 20s and could stay up till 5 a.m. talking about predestination versus free will or whatever. I don't want to do that with anybody now. I mean, I don't want to do that for 45 minutes. So it's like, I mean, it's like so many of these things that for me seem so pressing before. Partly because I recognize my own capacity to gravitate towards these theological abstractions and these big ideas and to get all wrapped up in them and to get even heated about them and really passionate about them. And yet how easy it is for me to do that and not change my own life, much less be part of something that's changing the world. So I am bored with my own apathy and my own indifference. And I recognize that I can make a few tweaks conceptually and theologically and it not necessarily make a difference on the ground. I recognize my own capacity to change things about uh, the, the order uh, or about the liturgy in some ways and yet miss the point of the liturgy altogether. So these days, part of what I feel like is happening, in the same time where I feel like my rediscovery of liturgy is causing me to come awake in different ways, then there's just these other things that I'm seeing. Um... Those were here a few weeks ago to meet my friend Jared McKenna. It's been a big part of my journey these days. Seeing how God uses him and his very prophetic witness is one that's really challenging me right now. Uh, the work that he's doing with refugees. I, when Jared was here, we talked a bit about the week that we spent. Uh, the Children's Defense Fund uh, puts on this thing called the Proctor Institute. Uh, that the Children's Defense Fund was founded by Marion Wright Edelman and just kind of being at the feet of those folks, these great luminaries in the civil rights movement. And I don't know, I'm, you, I had some conversation with some people between services, uh, referencing how much I talk about Martin Luther King, which I know I do all the time in the civil rights movement. Uh, there, there's reasons for this. I think that that, for me, is such a tangible expression of what it looks like, when people live out the teachings of Jesus in real life on the ground and the kind of change it can make. Like, that's the kind of movement I want to be a part of, is a movement that makes a real difference in the world. And at this point, if again, if something's not going to make a real difference in the world, it just just doesn't hold the same interest to me that it used to. But I'm saying all that to say, um, I think especially when it comes to matters of justice, part of what is so uh, intimidating for us is that justice, again, forces us to have to look at the world and forces us to have to look at at injustice in a way that's critical, uh, makes us reflect on things that we don't want to reflect on, because inevitably to have the conversation about justice is to have a conversation not just about doing compassionate things for people, not just about being merciful, but raising the questions of how God would call us to discern the roots of injustice. Uh, to discern why is the world broken in the way that it is broken and what are we called to do as part of God's renewal movement to, to do something about this. I mentioned uh, Marian Wright Edelman and there was a speech of hers that I love with the, in this quote that I wanted to share with you. She was talking about uh, Martin Luther King, a speech that he gave following President Kennedy's assassination where King said, he said, while the question of who killed President Kennedy was important, the question of what killed President Kennedy was even more critical. Dr. King believed that the answer was that this president was assassinated by a morally inclement climate. He said this is a climate filled with heavy torrents of false accusation, of jolting winds of hatred, of raging storms of violence. He says this is a climate where men cannot disagree without being disagreeable and can express dissent through violence and murder. That's such a great quote for me, but especially this idea, and it's not just important who killed King, but what killed King. What killed King? Uh, The biggest reason beyond my orthodoxy that I believe in a real devil, that I believe in a real Satan, is just how common it is and how much we see this at work in the world, that we can see clear cause and effect. We can, to some limited extent, see what causes certain kind of injustices in our world. We can see it for what it is, and yet our refusal somehow to internalize that, to have it right in front of us, and yet somehow to still not be able to really see, absolutely is indicative to me that there's a real thing of principalities and powers that blinds us to things that we do not want to see, that blinds us to things that especially that we feel like somehow would would implicate us, be right in front of our face, and yet we're still not able to see it for what it is. I feel like this is another one of these big sermons. I don't, but there's no way, of course, like it's not like flip a switch and all of a sudden we're people of justice or whatever. But here's the phrase for me in this text that's so significant. What God says, the very definition of repentance in Isaiah 1 is that you cease to do evil and you do good, and this is what it looked like you seek justice. Seek justice. Justice is a thing to be sought, we have to actively hunt for it investigate, seek, look for it. We talk a lot in the church about seeking God, which is good and appropriate and right. Nothing wrong with talking about seeking God or seeking Jesus. But I think so often we talk about seeking God, we're all about seeking God, while God is looking for people who will seek justice. (laughs) We are seeking a God who wants people who seek justice. And so often I'm coming increasingly to believe it is in seeking justice that we come to find God. This is not novel teaching. We see it all throughout both Old and New Testament, that where God is always most clearly demonstrably found is in the faces of those who are marginalized and oppressed. If I don't see God in any other place or in any other way, if my conscious sense of the presence of God is not being stimulated, I'm not super... Inevitably, where I will always find God is in the faces of those who are broken. Because that, that's, this is where God always is. Reading the Psalms last night, doing the daily office before bed. I was so moved. But how many times in one psalm, all these references to how God is the God of the poor, the oppressed, and the needy, uh, the way that God comes to the rescue, always again, language about widows and orphans. It is all over Scripture. And not so this is not some issue here of taking Isaiah 1 and saying, hey, gang, let's build a new doctrine around this one text or this one idea. This is a through line throughout all of Scripture and never more clearly so than in the teachings of Jesus. So interesting to me still how much we love Jesus, we worship Jesus, and we pay so little attention to anything they actually said because we don't know what to do with it. Matthew 23 is a great example of this to me. Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. That's what Isaiah is talking about. This, you, you got the liturgy right, uh, your worship looks good on the surface, but you're neglecting the weightier, ladders of the, the weightier matters of the law, which are what? Justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. It is these you ought to have practiced. This is what God is most concerned about the weightier matters of the law. The weightier matters of the law aren't about theological abstractions. It's not in in language, though all of that matters. But substance, what are we going to do with the faith that we've been given? Even the gospel text that we read today, which I don't have time to go into at length. I really want to preach from Isaiah 1. But that, for me, is so interesting. Jesus is telling the disciples, first of all, sell all your possessions. I don't know what to do with all of that either. Give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. And it's right at the end of that that Jesus begins to talk about judgment, about the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night, which in this context is not about being rescued, but about being judged. I am continually fascinated that at how often it is when Jesus talks about judgment that it is framed in the language of how we treat those who are on the margins of society. Matthew 25, the separation of sheep and goats is not about what creed that you believe or don't believe, what prayer you did or did not pray, but what have you done for those who were leased, who were lost, who were left out? What have you done for those who were on the outskirts? What have you done for those in the margins? That's what judgment is about in Matthew 25. How interesting that we can talk so much about judgment and never talk about judgment the way Jesus talks about it. The point of this is not to scare anybody or to intimidate anybody, but rather to say this. If we are really serious about getting the liturgy right, if we're serious about getting the worship right, then we best allow God by his spirit to wake us up to the implications of the liturgy. God, what does it look like for us to really live this out in real life? Because according to Isaiah, the stakes are really high here. Whether or not we're going to really be people of God or not, whether or not we're going to carry the presence of God or not, has so much to do with what we do with this. Not gracious. There are so many things that are important in the life of faith. But I don't feel like I can overstate how much more important this is than any other dimension of our life with God, is how we live our lives in the world as it pertains to people who are on the margins. This conversation still feels too often to me like, For and even for myself, a peripheral tack on, that like you know, we focus on Jesus and orthodoxy and right worship and somewhere down the line, once or twice a year, given some kind of offering or whatever we might do, just some sort of token nod towards issues of justice and mercy. I'm trying to wrestle through and discern through what does it look like for this to become the thrust of my life. I don't know where that will where that will lead me. I don't know where God is taking me. It frankly makes me a little bit nervous, but I'm, but I'm excited about it too because I believe so strongly that this is where and how the Spirit is working. I'll end, I'll end with this. That last part of the Isaiah 1 text, verse 18, just feels like a right place to land because when the, for all the words of judgment in Isaiah that can be so harrowing, uh, one of the things I love about Isaiah is that it always comes around with an opportunity for repentance, uh, an opportunity to change our minds, to change our orientation, to change what direction we're moving in. In Isaiah 1, verse 18, it closes with this. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And we can stop right there. Come, let us argue it out. I know a lot of the older translations say, come, let us reason together. But more of the spirit of the text really is, come, let us argue it out. (laughs) You know, it's interesting how... um, sometimes I think even in our own relationships. As much as we don't want to argue, and arguments can be done in an unhealthy way, argument can also be a sign of passion and care, that you don't argue with somebody that you don't care about on some level. It's a sign of like passion. And I find it so interesting that on the tail end of the Lord pronouncing such judgment, that then he says, come, let's argue this out. Come, let's have a real conversation about this, people of God. Come, Israel, Let's talk about what really matters here. And I wonder if in some ways if that's not a really relevant word to us as the church right now. Come, let's argue it out. Come, let's have the real conversation. Let's not be afraid to talk about weightier matters of the law. Let's not be afraid about things that make for peace and for justice because the stakes are high here. And even if it involves difficult conversations, if it involves painful conversation, if it involves painful self-examination. It's worth it to get this part right. Come, let's argue it out. Let's grapple together. Let's struggle together as the people of God to discern what it means to be faithful in this way. Let's wrestle with it together. Let's not be afraid of the hard conversation. Let's not be afraid of the real conversation. Come, let's argue it out. Because the stakes for what we do as the people of God, whether or not we live out God's justice in the world, is so So high. Pray with me. Lord, I would just ask you now that by your spirit that you would shine your word as a light onto our hearts. Help us to see the things that we have not seen. Lord, so often in our own search, even for you, and even our own search for right doctrine and right ideas how blind we are to the real needs of real people, how blind we are to that which enslaves and oppresses, how blind we are to injustice. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open up our eyes to be able to see the implications of how we worship. I pray, God, that you would help us uh, not just to be people who recite the liturgy but who allow our order of worship to order our lives I pray that even as we come to the table in the next few moments, that rather than being just a moment in our week, that this will be the moment that teaches us how to live all of our moments. That somehow in the mystery even of how we come to the table of your body and blood given to us, broken and poured out for us, that you are teaching us how to be broken and poured out for the world. We pray, God, that we just ask you to have access to the depths of us, that what we do in here would so penetrate, every part of us would so get underneath our fingernails and in our hair and uh, just just all through us, Lord, that we would be saturated, God, with your truth. Teach us how to live this gospel. Teach Teach us how to live the worship of you as our living God in real life for the sake of the world. Because we know that whenever we worship you, whenever we praise you, that always, ultimately, the movement is always for the sake of the world. Show us the way, Lord. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.